0: The Seminar starts now. Welcome to The Seminar, a podcast from the Center for Cultural Analysis at Rutgers University. My name is Nicholas Glastonbury, and I'm broadcasting from New Brunswick, New Jersey. Our guest today is Ana Maria Okoa-Gautier, who came to CCA in the fall to talk about her book, Orality, listening and knowledge in 19th century Colombia, as well as her ongoing and sustained engagements with indigenous filmmakers and documentarians in Colombia. Ana Maria Ocoa Gautier received her PhD in Ethnomusicology from Indiana University in 1996. She spent many years working in cultural policy in Colombia, out of which grew two books written in Spanish. She joined the Department of Music at Columbia University in New York in 2008. During her time there, she published Orality, Listening and Knowledge in 19th Century Columbia in 2014, and that book was awarded the Alan Merriam Prize by the Society for Ethnomusicology. She is currently professor and chair of the Newcomb Department of Music at Tulane University, and she spends her time between the United States and Colombia. Her book Orality is a theoretically complex and extraordinarily rich work that straddles the borders of history, anthropology, linguistics, ethnomusicology, and folklore. And I'll say more about the book later on in the episode. But Okoa's sustained scholarship grows out of a radical commitment to collaboration with the indigenous communities and groups about whom she writes. This commitment has led her to become part of a collective with members of the indigenous Wiwa in Colombia. She works with them on the production of film, sound recordings, and other documentary work. Her commitments to collaborative scholarship and creative work wrinkle at some of the fundamental tenets of the Academy and call into question notions of authorship and the ethics of writing about versus with the social worlds which scholars study. Her work, accordingly, is more than just public-facing. It's oriented toward altogether novel forms of knowledge production and committed to shepherding the resources afforded within the Academy to those communities with whom she works.
1: Surprisingly, one of the um, most avid readers of the book are sound artists in Latin America. So through invitations of multiple sorts, I've ended up working with sound artists And a lot of projects that are not only film, as you have seen, but projects that also include um, visual installations. So just to be very, very brief, I'm working on these films and on other films. Um, I've worked with OIWA for more than 20 years. I've not written one single word. Um, I didn't feel that was what I was meant to do. And right now, we have co-written our first article Hmm. that has emerged out of um, a collective that we formed a year and a half ago with um, Javeriana University in Bogota, four professors of the arts department, a sound engineer, the, the head of the sound engineer program, myself, and then we did a workshop on sound recording, which is the forgotten dimension of film. Uh, I'm, there's a lot of sound theory in film, but it doesn't appear. Anyway, so we're working on, we did a workshop based on that. Um, uh, I have, you know, a few visuals here. If afterwards, you want to see them very briefly. But, um, and uh, that was a year and a half ago. And out of that, what came out, when you have these human-non-human relations, soundscape doesn't work because soundscape is over there, out there. Music well, you know what happens when you learn it from the river, like the women that we all women do, right? Like the sagas, you saw there was a lot of water in in the film, for example. That's not by accident. And so um, uh, we did one day of field recording. We did one day in the Foley Studio in Havana, and we did one day of just building with cheap stuff, building microphones and building um, repairing cables and doing things that you don't need to go through B and H to buy equipment. And so the second day, the folio was what they loved the most because it's audio-visual. And also because it just unclenched the whole imagination about um, sounds and singing and everything. So we, for now, this is very brief. And this is only the younger generation came up with a project for which we're getting some money, which is documenting uh, a bank of sounds, <laughs> like how, how they do in films of the mm. Sierra Nevada, that and they themselves went back to the with the microphones that we built, and they had microphones that I had. I had bought. I had asked for a grant about ten years ago, and they have equipment from then. Um, and um, so anyway, we're at that stage where we're co-writing, where trying to get a grant to do this next phase. And also, I brought a, a sound artist from Chile. He lives in Bolivia, who has worked with indigenous groups for 20 years. So, And he also was part of a, the art installation that Chile took to uh, the Venice Biennale in 2022. It's called Turba Hall if you want to see it online. There's a lot of material. It's all about the Sheltnam recovering their language at the same time that they recover the peatlands for carbon sequestration. Hmm. Um, And the Chocnam are considered extinct. uh, Contrary to the Wiwa that have recognition by the Colombian government, the Chocnam are considered an extinct people, so they're trying to get uh, validation as living beings in front of the... And the uh, the Ethnomusicological Archive produces them. There's a 1972 recording. You know, this is the last surviving Chocnam, 72. It's like it's not 1939. Um, So... um, Anyway, that's what I've been doing. Um, it's a very different moment for me, also, in the way, a moment of return. When I wrote Orality, it was, what on earth do I do now that I'm in this country? <laughs> and what I came up with was an archival project, I guess, that sort of um, uh, had my interests. Uh, But I grew up very much invested with my, my piano teacher was my ethnomusicology teacher too. She was my neighbor. She was very involved with the liberation theology movement. And so I grew up with her working with another indigenous group, the NASA group. Um, So a lot of this collaborative work in Kuala. So I'm very interested in what are the forms that collaborative work takes. And what do you need to do? She never published about the NASA, but she worked with them 30 years. She became a honorary member of them. So how do you become an ethnomusicologist that does not publish about, but does other types of things? Um, and also, when, uh, when do they want or we want to publish, and what, and how to write, And this um, and how to write together is a big question as we develop this article between a sound artist, a sound engineer, and three of the Wiwa, which is a, uh, Roberto's, um, uh, a saga in training, shaman woman in training. She had a baby, so she can continue um, her communications degree. Um, Roberto's son, who's now um, uh, doing a bachelor's in film studies in the University of Magdalena in Santa Marta. And the recent film Matuna is a myth which they call fiction, <laughs> because they have to act in a different way. This has a lot of acting, too. But um, anyway, and so it's six of us. Um, of course, very different voices. The only one that has the profession of writing is me. They all either produce sound or film, or, but all of them are involved in writing in some way or another. So anyway, so that's what I can say. I think um, I'm opening to conversations about orality. I think it was the solution I found to being here in the United States. Um, and at that time, I was still going a lot to Colombia. Now I want to return after I retire.
0: Her book, Orality, was a response to the demands of the American Academy for single authored monographs, a demand that stands at odds with her collaborative work with indigenous communities in South America. Orality is a sprawling work of archival ethnomusicology, and the book traces what she calls the acoustics of the colonial, wherein sound, voice, and orality, writ broadly, become colonial technologies for policing the boundaries between human and non-human. She studies a range of archival materials, from the diaries of the naturalist Alexander von Humboldt to the work of folklorists and linguists who were vested in the production of what she calls The Lettered City.
1: It took a long time. It's a book that took a long time. And it was initially a very different book. It was a book about the 1940s um, and the intellectual figures that we were talking about with Foucault. I saw that in Latin America, you had these writers very famous writers like Garcia Marquez or Arguedas in Peru or Mario Andrade in Brazil, who were all producing um, sound recordings Like at the same time that they were writing novels and they were uh, writing about music. So that I thought this is not an accident, this is an intellectual formation in the Foucauldian sense of the word such, but it doesn't use the university or journals or it's what Arturo Escobar called an indiscipline. So I did a little article about that and then I said, but I'm going to limit my book to the 19th century. And I went to the radio archives, as I say at the beginning of the book, and there I found that the 19th century was a major reference and the book took a major turn. And what turned it really was um, I found that listening, Humboldt's writing about the Bogas, and I have also found Candelario Besos. My mom gave me Candelario Besos' book. She bought it in the supermarket, and she came with it and said, I think you would be interested in this. And so I, and, and then I found this archive of sonorities, um, and I'll just say one more thing. I just, I then finished the book. I was very dissatisfied with the first draft, but, you know, sent it to Duke anyway. The, the reviews came back that it was okay, but and then I reread it. And um, it was like two years later that they came back with the comments. At that point, I was already working with a Wiwa. It was an accident. A friend invited me to La Sierra, and I have never left. Uh, and And then... I read the whole, and by then I had read a totally different bibliography, and I read the whole book, and I realized there was an animal in every chapter. Mm -hmm. And I said, why is there an animal in every chapter? This is the hidden book that is not there. So I went back and worked on the the book for two more years and uh, uh, redid part of the archive and incorporated a, 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 not a huge different archive, discarded one chapter on Darwin, which, because I was exhausted at the end, <laughs> it's like, that's a different thing. And, and Darwin was never in Colombia, so this is a very Colombian book in a way. My, my new work is very comparative across the Americas. Um, and, um, and then that's how I came back to this um, more invested in this nature culture question of the 19th century, which I think is a different question right now.
0: Okoa writes that, quote, sonic perception is spread on corporeal difference, scientific explanation, and the narration of uncontainable, bodily-produced noises, end quote. Those noises included the howls of the bogas, or boat rowers, as they traversed the Magdalena River. So accordingly, the consolidation of knowledge about the natural world was a concomitant of the consolidation of a racialized, and indeed biopolitical or zoo political order, wherein the legibility of voice is the necessary condition for affording personhood. Orality is thus a central analytic for parsing the envoicement, as she calls it, of a modern Colombia out of its very particularly sonic register of the colonial.
1: So I think I was trying to use the word envoicement. Um envoicing uh, this is the thing. I went through each case, mm-hmm. but that's theorized more in the in the fourth chapter. And um, first, the word f- folklore did not appear a lot in my archive because it's a later creation mm-hmm. or it's a creation towards the end. The word oral, O-R-A-L, does appear because oral poetry was the name. So they were trying to define what was oral poetry to be able to define what made it into folklore or not. Because in Latin America, you have this tradition of not separating um, the literary from the musical and, and, and and folklore. So it was not ethnomusicology, it was folklore. Right ethnomusicology uh, is a, something that is brought in from the United States later, later that in Colombia, not in Argentina or Chile, uh, which has such a strong german influence um, so, um, so when I went through each case, I was seeing how the idea of the lettered city is a very powerful critique in Latin America. it has a very important is highly influential. And, um, and Angel Rama was a really interesting scholar, but what, and he did speak a little bit about phonography, not too much. But so there's a whole body of theory, but that is a sort of very Foucauldian, developed on the effect of the written word in Latin America. So what I was trying to say is okay, what happens in the act of inscribing, mm-hmm. right? So rather than look at the technology as the written word, I looked at a process which was writing. So it was like I took my my key from recording. Right, That's the technology you have for recording. So if you have to press a button and you have this, that's one thing, but if you have to write it on the pen, it's an inscription anyway, right? You are still doing a translation. So let's, let's complicate this from the technological point of view. Let's just not have this linear assumption that's recorded as one thing or magnetically recorded as one thing or electronically recorded, and this is the other. So I wanted to think of writing as a magnetic technology, as from the recorder backwards. So, so it's a technology, right? And inscription is an act of what they teach you in ethnomusicology. With a microphone, you capture some sounds and you don't match, capture others. I said, well, the same thing has to happen with the written word. <laughs> so um, I started looking at the archive from that perspective and what happened to the voice instead of to the lettered word, right? Because when you are creating the um, folkloric or ethnomusicological archive or listening to the bogas, right? Um, you are trying to um, not only, let's say, you're the lettered person or these lettered men. We're not only trying to define what made it into folklore and what didn't, which the fourth chapter is about very much. But we're trying to say, how did these people sound and how when they voiced themselves, they were considered animal. For example, so instead, so that doesn't make it into folklore because the voice, so the is, is animals. So what happens is a, they do not get inscribed into the propriety of what folklore can be, but they do get inscribed into an archive that describes them as animal because of the voices that they have. Mm-hmm. So the lettered city allows for some voices, but doesn't allow for other voices, except as a racialized voice that has to be excluded, not as the folkloric archive of oral poetry. So this is not only a critique of the work concept. This is also a critique of the way in Colombia it's understood the history of orality as folklore is understood. So it's, it's a critique of both. So I, was, I used the word envoicement, trying to think of, Jonathan Stern uses the word ensignment in his book, mm-hmm. trying to think not solely of enlightenment and ensignment. Um, and then I also come from this folkloristic um, uh, from you know ethno poetics and um, performance theory, where the project the process of intextualization and recontextualization is very much emphasized rather than an object or it's that theorization that went from folklore is this, to folklore is this mode of staging right. So I was um, you know that that's the people I did my PhD with so and they had just published also Richard Bauman and and Charles Briggs, this uh, Voices of Modernity book, which is about these folklorists and how they recorded their stuff. So that was a very influential book. Um, and, and so what um, happens is that um, there's the, the voice. So, it, so on the one hand, there's a critique of the lettered city as an accomplished thing. You write, and therefore you have this vocodium. On the other hand, there's a disjuncture. Because they write out about the bogas this way, does it mean that the bogas are going to stop singing? No. Right. So you have the writing about the bogas, and you have the bogas singing in the river, right? Yeah. Um, and you have both. So the, let's say the Foucauldian imposition is not necessarily that which makes the uh, sounding of the voice disappear. So you have the simultaneity of these voices existing, the one that is the lettered city, let's say that way, and the other that is not the lettered city. Also, Colombia was a country, I mean, I I related in one of the chapters, my grandmother and my mother would recite these (laughs) these like syllabary of how to, Spell correctly. I grew up listening to this stuff. They taught it to them in school. These were not the grammarians were not just published in the late nineteenth century and then forgotten. It just influenced the pedagogy. it influenced the church. It influenced they were extremely powerful and the extreme racism and exclusion of Colombia. If we're in civil war permanently, it's because it's a highly, you know, it's a it's a it's a highly aggressive country in terms of its Mm -hmm. politics of exclusion, Mm -hmm. right? So um, that permeated a lot of institutionality. And so um, um, each chapter then explores how that was done in different ways and with different characters. So Obeso is not the same as Jorge Sachs, who is not the same as, I always forget, the author of the book of History of Literature in Nugrana. Um, In any case, uh, these major figures, right? So what I wanted to do, and that's why the chapter has become so long, is instead of proposing a single reading, so here is the colonizing subject. It's like, wait, colonizing subjects came in many forms and shapes. And we just not only need to say, they're white and they're colonizing. Is like, wait a minute, let's go beyond this and see what the, how that is done mm-hmm. specifically. And so, yes, this is about sort of how to come up with the colonial notion of folklore. And it is, I think that's very important because it's like it's the work concept. And then the folklorists are dealing with diversity. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> they are exactly and um, dealing with another form of exclusion that is coded in diversity because we are working with indigenous people or we are working with African-American, Afro-Colombians or whatever, and they're just as excluded but, the, but through another paradigm, right? And so I also was very much against this moment of emergence of decolonial theory in Latin America, which I decided not to write against in the book, <laughs> But the moment that Walter Mignolo and all these people began to write was the moment when I was writing the book. And uh, so my archive did not fit their theorization. And I just um, thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And at one point I said, I have to write a critique of this. And I said, no, because I destroy my archive. It becomes a conversation with them. I don't want a conversation with them. I want a conversation with this material. Mm -hmm. And so maybe to an extreme, I I, I did it veiled. Like I referenced... You know, I referenced other people. I referenced Candelar Goveso, and I referenced, you know, people that it's been going on since the 17th century or the 16th century. And uh, mm-hmm. so I do the reference, and I do, you know, older references, uh, which I cannot remember at this point. But um, but I purposefully do, like, this decolonial work is not It's so comfortable to put ourselves as the decolonials and the rest as the colonials. It's like we have a power troubles too, right? And so I think that's such a complicated way of doing deconstruction and such an unethical way of doing deconstruction because I'm constantly learning (laughs) and we have to learn every day. And this is not a solved issue.
0: I think that Okoa would argue that the decolonial turn in recent scholarship from theorists like Walter Mignolo about Latin America fails to interrogate certain notions of personhood, particularly liberal personhood, in its decolonizing vision. What she describes as the contested history of the definition of the human as a species has been a central topic of debate in Latin America since colonial times, and the archives she writes about are animated by that very debate. As she shows, the archives are replete with descriptions of the distinction between humans and non-humans, and this distinction is articulated by delineating what is music from what is not music, what is voice from what is noise. The care with which she attends to her archives also pushes at the limits of what traditional disciplines really allow you to study. Because how does one study the very limits of the category of personhood?
1: One thing that happened in the archive is that there is a problem with personhood, obviously. And I wanted to use the word personhood because it was not only about race; it was m- much more. It was used for racist ends, for sure. You know, um, but this was about <coughs> this boundary line between our this unending question of the colonial Americas, which is the original question: Are they human or are they not indigenous people? Right, um, and that question seems to never go away. It never goes away. I have been standing in line in the middle of Bogota to go into a film with the people from La Sierra, and the people in line are commenting, "Oh, they have cell phones." You know, it, it just—it doesn't go away. It's—it's it's a specter that doesn't go away. So it's racism, yes, but it's much more than that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, in the history of slavery and the history of indigenous oppression, the different formats that that took are uh, a question about this boundary line between the human and the animal, right? And that boundary line doesn't go away, and that boundary line is justified in different ways in different historical times. So I kept the word personhood because the material I found was a material that was contradictory (laughs) um, and that was, at the same time, I was trying to see if I could listen to the people that were reading, written about without only writing from the perspective of, for example, Humboldt and simply saying, I'm going to write about Humboldt or I'm going to write about Jorge Sachs or about Candelario Oeso and say how they were part of the lettered city or confused about the lettered city or not part of the lettered city but wanting to be part of the Candelario Beso. Um, And how do you write about that? And so what I did was, in a way, read very carefully the archive. I spent a lot of time reading these people. (laughs) I read a lot of Humboldt, who's a very copious writer. I read a lot of Miguel Antonio Caro, who's a very copious, horrendous, racist, (laughs) horrible writer. And very intelligent. Very, very, very intelligent. And so I, I, I spent a lot of time with the archive, and then from that, I speculated, because there was no from based on the archival material, but you find these teeny voices of the bogas or of the indigenous people that are accompanying Humboldt saying in the middle of the night that, you know, well, no, they are having a feast. yes, they are having a feast, as is customary today in present day ethnography all over the Americas that the nighttime. Is the time when certain things happen, right? So uh, um, there's been there have been even anthropology encounters about night- nighttime rituals. Um, you know, this is like a main main ethnographic staple. So it's not like one little obscure book said, you know. And during the nighttime, there's a type of sound of animals. And that's the time when shamans sing all night. That's the time, you know, there's a there's. A so I tried to do these connections or the connections, let's say, in a later chapter with um, trying to under- understand these so very different figures. Like, I mean, there's there's an exploration about masculinities here that I did not write about. Uh, in the book mm-hmm. um, the book already has but and um, women's voices I, I found one and then decided that that was a different book mm-hmm. uh, because it required a totally different um, mode they were in the pictures like you see the pictures of the women in the boats of the bogus but you never in the materials I read about the bogas. I never found material about women uh, sounding, sounding. maybe they were just completely silenced. But there's other um, scholars in Colombia that have worked on 19th century writers and women, and so they're there, that's absent from the book. Um, and what's absent is a theorization of these contrasting masculinities, which was very strong. So what do you do with a Candelario Beso, a Jorge Sags, a Miguel Antonio Caro? You know, very different figures. The other thing is that um, some of these are very well-known figures in Colombia, but they had never been written about. Like, Colombia is this country of grammarian presidents. Um, you know, that is well known. Um, but what was not well known is that um, using the archive to sort of think about language in a sonorous way and in interconnectivity to other aesthetics of language, like, for example, when Jorge Sags tries to say, he has the first ethnography, which is in the region where the was live. Um, so um, I was really interested in that. And um, at that time, he's he basically he, he engages in civil—Colombia uh, is always in civil war, of course. Mm-hmm. So um, he engages in civil war against Miguel Antonio Caro and the very conservative elite. And so he's basically saying, you know, in the Chronicles, these people— i am traveling with them, they're telling me that's not the correct thing. The chronicles are wrong. And it's correct if you follow their instructions, you know, it's like he's a first person that in some way is listening with the it's like the transformation from race as culture to racist from racist as religion to race as culture. It's enacted here, right? But he does enact that transformation in a very particular way, which in the United States is sort of credit to Boaz. Um, but, um, so I was very interested in that. So in the end, I'm not sure this is an answer, but what I'm trying to say is I, a lot of people work on sound studies because they don't want to work on music. I did not work, work on sound studies because I thought, thought that music was just such a restrictive racist object, mm-hmm. and it excluded the sounding of these people. And what I wanted to do was not write a sound studies book that was outside of music. What I wanted is a discussion with, with this, which is why music theorists, more than musicologists, have a very strong presence in the book. They were the my discussion is with um, you know these people that do philosophy of music, uh, Daniel K. Chua, um Anyway, I can't remember them right now, but they helped me very much think through materials in a way that was why is. Um, the 19th century, the moment of definition of musicology and ethnomusicology, not including these voices. What do they do to be able to include a voice? So you do the type of, so that's why I go into this comparative archive. So for the Bellacula to come in, you have to basically change their singing. (laughs) Don't sound a rattle. Don't be in a choir. Slow down. Now I can transcribe. Oh, now I have music right yeah. okay so so I was very interested in that those operations and how they transpired through in a way through each part of the book mm-hmm. so my aim was not excluding musicology it was a critique of musicology and ethnomusicology mm-hmm. so because ethnomusicology sometimes prides itself on carrying difference with what is different <laughs> so um so it was a critique of both fields in a way or the interrelationship with both fields
0: Okoa's critique of musicology and ethnomusicology carries over into her sustained work with the Wiwa people. The categories through which these and other disciplines operate are themselves all too often the very categories through which colonial knowledge functioned. And yet, in her collaborative work with Wiwa filmmakers, these categories and their distinctions do not map onto Wiwa conceptions of the relationship between, for instance, story and song, myth and music, or fiction and nonfiction. One of the films she was involved in is called Ushui, a quasi-documentary about forms of tribal knowledge that are transmitted from mothers to daughters. The film itself troubles the boundary between documentary and narrative cinema, and it emblematizes what some scholars might describe as the embedded aesthetics of the Wiwa people.
1: When I saw the film for the first time, I said, what, but they told me they were gonna record the voices of the women, the sagas, here is the ethnomusicologist, right? And then I get this story about this woman going down to you know, city, feeling polluted and coming back and having to heal. Of course, because the separation between storytelling and sound, but it hit me that I was such the ethnomusicologist. You know, here we are trained to hear these collections of songs, and they make no sense Whatsoever to have a collection of songs. You still have people doing the music of the Well. There's a recent film that came out last year with another mom or that they were, you know, somebody else does it. But when they do it, they mix everything together. There's not, the, here's the myth and here's the storytelling and here's the song and here's the film, right? Which is why... I think audiovisual materials, which is what I'm interested in right now, uh, are so important to them because they had um, tape recorders and were available since the 1990s. They could have created networks of recordings exchange, a sound recording exchange. They had that material. They had the technology. That never happened. The moment audiovisual technology became exchangeable, there's a Latin American film festival of indigenous film. There's a national, almost in each country, film festival of indigenous film. Uh, there's a major transformation of how they share the materials, and I think it's partially that they doesn't allow, it doesn't oblige the separation. Mm-hmm. So what's really interesting is that you see them, you know, walking up to the mamu and like putting the microphone in. Here it's like, how do you do that or here it's staged, of course, walking into the Ushui. That was a big discussion. They discussed about it for days, and then they filmed the discussion into a little scene. Right. Um, which is why I say acting, you know, what is acting to them or what is not. So this they want to make sure, you know, this is and is not a documentary. Um, so these discussions usually take days and then they film the discussion or the discussion of what are we going to film? You know, and that discussion of reverse anthropology, you know, when they watch, they want to watch action. Um if it were for us, we would just film the mamo talking for 10 hours, right? Which is what they do, sit, listen, 10 hours. You know, um, you eat, you weave, do all sorts of things. So anyway, there's a lot of also ethnographic material that uh, recounts these types of things. Like there's a book, an early book on the iguana to weave and to sing, where um, David Gus goes and tries to learn from the iguana. Um, the myth, uh, you know, he has test, has, tries to tell a myth, and then he, four months go by, no myth, no myth, no myth, and says, okay, I'm going to weave baskets with the men. And then the myth is in the weaving of the baskets. So it's this very other type of understanding of, of not a work, but a distributed notion of what a work. So when they film the, the film, Matuna, which I'm sorry I didn't provide, I'll give it to you um, afterwards um it's like um when they showed it to the community Ah, but you're missing this and you're missing that because it's always a fragment the only thing is the the power of audiovisual inscription you know has a has a different um strength
0: so if the book orality parses how certain categories of personhood and sociality became fixed Okoa's collaborative work with the Wiwa has in some ways worked to unfix, or unmoor, some of those assumptions. So for instance, she explained how video cameras, field recorders, and other audiovisual technologies fit within Wiwa cosmologies. They're not merely Western impositions, as we might assume. Likewise, notions of what preservation means to indigenous people are very different than the notions of preservation at play in the work of ethnomusicologists and anthropologists in North America. Attending to the was sensibilities about their world, and their work as filmmakers and documentarians, thus makes us call into question our own certainties about the world. It orients us more toward contingency, toward social process. Doing so has wider ramifications, not just for how we think about indigenous life, but how we think about the preservation of the world itself.
1: You sing to the mountain to do an offering to create equilibrium in the world. That's a form of inscription, right? If there's equilibrium, then there's it's inscribed, it's fixed. So I also have this question about, you know, mutability and fixedness, which is, you know, a question, but I'm The the problem with fixedness is that we want to fix it forever. We have an... Like, the West has an obsession of things having to be fixed and preserved and held. And instead of the care of the planet so that we can have a life. (laughs) So I have a problem with the politics of preservation as a politics of fixedness. Because, frankly, I... I don't care if my book disappears. <laughs> I learned a lot doing it. I think other people have maybe like you know used it for for some, and then it's gone. But this idea that you're in the humanities because you're this original thinker to create this original object, and I don't know where that comes from—is from the Middle Ages—or is I think deeply problematic. And unless—and one of the effects of that is that when you start working collectively. You don't know how to work collectively. Collectively has not helped. Like, critical thinking has not helped. Well, it does, but at the same time, it's like how do we write together? How do I use this WhatsApp that Veronica? you know, just sent me, um, what's the correct politics and what should I be doing here? We should writing be the So we, I did all these sessions about, right. should we actually be writing? And they were like, of course. And should we pre- be presenting this through cultural anthropology? And it's like, as long as we're getting along, we should present that everywhere. <laughs> so there is a different emphasis, which is like some sort of process, you know, um and I I wonder, of course, we have these moments of, I have to be Ana Maria to get on the bus, right? And to get on the, right? There, there's this moment of structuring and not just fluctuation. So I get what you're saying. At the same time, I wonder if we can deal with, with with these objects that are so central to our lives in a different way that doesn't require a politics of fixedness as an, as an everlasting thing. You see what I'm trying to say? Even though, for example, they do say maybe, like the Mamo says, this fantasy that, the, that brings, You know, will I be here heard 100 years from now, right? So they're stuck in between this like preservation. Yet we started talking about the archives, and they said, there's no way we're going to have the film archives in, this, in a separate space from the health archives. It doesn't work. So what do you do? <laughs> so, you know, that's a discussion. So um, I don't know. It's a very big question. And I'm not, I'm not going to solve it for, you know, in this discussion. I'm just expressing how, of course, there's this... Um, I, I just, it's like ethnomusicology is a, is a discipline born out of a politics that says the indigenous peoples are all disappearing, disappearing, they did not use the word, we're killing them, it's a genocide, you know, it's, it's disappearing becomes this metaphor to engage in preservation, and I have a lot of problem with that, right? That's a very different desire from, from Mamo Ramon Gil, who's very old, saying, maybe I can be a 100 years from now from my descendants. That's not because he's disappearing. That's because he's done an incredible struggle to be where they are and to not get killed by everybody around them and to you know survive that. That's a very different desire. So what are our desires of preservation based on? And I really just think this ethnomusicology to preserved, because they are disappearing, can be um, correct in one sense, in the sense that there was a genocide, and they killed a lot of people, but it's not, the, the first, it's like the Sheltnam said, because the Sheltnam were very few were left, of the, there was just a massacre, and so they said, so she said, um, a, a poet, a poet, who, who um, I interviewed for, her, she was saying, they're always looking for the last one, Mm-hmm. First it was Lola Kierkegaard, and now it was her daughter, and now it's me. So there's, it's always the last one. We're not, there's no last one. It doesn't exist, right? So it's like this is the last thing that is left. This is, so they're not looking for the last one. They're very conscious that this is – I mean, the, the wewa began to be co- – Christopher Columbus boats arrived in Santa Marta. You know, they began to be colonized right from the start. And there they are, 600 years later, speaking Wiwa. You know, it's like um, – so – there's. It's a complicated issue, but I just I, I I have this. I can't stand this ethnomusicological need for preservation, and so I understand the need for fixity and preservation. We cannot only be movement because we'll go crazy. Um, and for those people that are displaced and everything, that's a big thing. For example, but how do you create belonging? Um, Or how do you create a different politics of propriety, of property, right? That uh, is not tied to this capitalistic angst of, you know, the fixed objects to be able to, to sell. You know, this is our life right now. It's about how to define life and care for it.
0: That was Dr. Ana Maria Okoa-Gautier, and that's our show. Ana Maria Okoa-Gautier is professor of music and ethnomusicology at Tulane University. You can find out more about her work, including links to her books and to the filmmaking work of the Wiwa people in the show notes or at our website, seminarpod.org. The seminar is a production of the CCA at Rutgers University. Episodes are produced, edited, and mixed by me, Nicholas Glastonbury. Our theme music is by Aldous Icknight. Special thanks to Colin Yeager, Maurice Wallace, Andrew Parker, and Derek Barron, and thanks once again to our guest, Dr. Anna-Maria Find us on the web at seminarpod.org. The CCA is at cca.rutgers.edu. Thanks for listening to the seminar. Till next time.